The following message by Pastor Tim is brought to you by Together in Christ. Good morning. It's good to see all of you this morning. If you want to take your Bibles out, we're going to be in 1 Samuel chapter 27. And I hope you're ready to sprint this morning because that's what we're going to do. I know you say I'm not. You never want to hear that. I don't know if any of us ever want to hear that. You ready to sprint? No one says yes to that ever. But it's what we're going to do this morning, because we're going to actually go all the way to 2 Samuel chapter 1 as our goal. So it's six chapters today, so that we can end up where we want to be in the coming weeks. If you remember where we left off last week, what had happened, just to sum it up very briefly, is David could have killed Saul two times, and both times he relented. He did not do it. And so we saw there at the end of chapter 26 that they departed Right? And, and Saul at this time promised not to do David harm, and David had promised Saul to look after Saul's descendants. That's, that's where we ended. And so when we find ourselves in chapter 27, verse 1 through 4, it might seem confusing of what is being done here, but it's obvious that even though they agreed to these things, uh, the bargain wasn't upheld. We're going to see. So look at verse 1 of chapter 27. It says, And David said in his heart, Now I shall perish someday by the hand of Saul. There is nothing better for me than that I should speedily escape to the land of the Philistines. And Saul will despair of me to seek me any more in any part of Israel. So I shall escape out of his hand. Then David arose and went over with the 600 men who were with him to Achish, the son of Maok, king of Gath. So David dwelt with Achish at Gath, he and his men, each man with his household, and David with his two wives, Ahonim, the Jezreelite, and Abigail, the Carmelitess, Nabal's widow. And it was told Saul that David had fled to Gath, so he sought him no more. We'll look at all of chapter 27 together and actually the first couple of verses of 28. But we see here again, there was this promise that there would be no more conflict between David and Saul, that David would be safe, that Saul's family would be safe. Saul actually said, you're going to be king. I, I know this is going to happen. But yet when we get to chapter 27, all of a sudden there's all this fear in the life of David again. So much so, so much fear from Saul that we see him once again running to the enemy, running to the land of the Philistines, right? And Saul hears of this, it says, and it says there in verse 4 that he then no longer chases David. You have to try to imagine just a little bit the struggles that David is going through trying to put yourself in that situation. Because I know it keeps talking about 600 men, but they had their families with them. David had his family. And so he's bouncing around from place to place with 600 men, maybe who knows how many people, a lot of people, 2,000 people or more maybe, following along wherever David had to go. And David is the leader of this group and he's having to think about food. He's having to think about shelter, protection. Right? All of these things are are coming up in David's mind, no doubt. And so when we look again at David, we can easily say, come on, David, you ran to the Philistines of all people? But maybe he was just wanting a little bit of peace, the fact that he wouldn't have to run from Saul anymore. And it's sad that David, the, the one who's been anointed as God's chosen king, would have to run to the foreign land to find safety from the king who is in control of Israel at the time. Now, this doesn't set aside the sin, though, that David is committing here, because God was very clear with David when talking with David in earlier chapters that he should never leave Judah. He told David to stay in Judah, and David now is fleeing there. So we can't gloss over the fact that, king David, that David here is sinning. He's not king yet, so I guess I can't call him that. And so in verses 5 through 12, we see that David then goes to the king of Gath, and he tells him, why should I be here with you in this city? Can you give me another city? And so the king of Gath does. He gives him Ziklag, the city of Ziklag, which is right on the border of Judah, right over there. And so David takes his men and the families down to Ziklag, and that becomes their town. And what David does while he is there is David actually becomes a mercenary. That's what he is. He goes to these different people who raid towns, and he raids them, and he attacks them, and he takes all of their spoil. Right? And, he, and he gets it from them. And, and scripture tells us that David actually annihilates everybody who is in that group that he goes to destroy because he doesn't want word getting out of what he's doing. 
Because when he gets the spoil, what he does is he goes to the king of Gath and he gives him some of the spoil every time. And the king asks him, who were you raiding? What were you doing? And he tells him that he was actually raiding Judah, people within Judah. And so the king starts to think, man, the Israelites are going to hate David then. He, he's, fighting, he's fighting against his own people. But David actually wasn't doing that. He was fighting against the people who were fighting Judah, the people in Judah. That's what he was doing. And so we see David entering this kind of mercenary role and then lying to the king about what he is doing. And scripture tells us as well that when David gains these spoils, that he would take care of people in Judah. And we'll see that later as well. But look at chapter 28, verse 1 and 2, because this is kind of the end of this section. It says, Now it happened in those days that the Philistines gathered their armies together for war to fight with Israel. And Achish said to David, You assuredly know that you will go out with me to battle, you and your men. Okay, i got to stop there for a second. The answer to that's no. They're going to fight Israel, and the king of the Philistines of Gath says, David, you know for sure that you will come and fight with me. Let's see how David responds. So David said to Achish, surely you know what your servant can do. And Achish said to David, therefore I will make you one of my chief guardians forever. Now there's a, there's a problem. We have a problem because God's chosen king for himself has just aligned himself with the enemy of God's people and has said, I will go and fight with the Philistines against Israel. And so David and his men will now be killing his own blood, fighting against his own family, his own people that he's supposed to reign over and take care of. We have an issue. And so we want to know what is going to happen next. We're, we're interested to know, but scripture kind of cuts us off because all of a sudden we change scenes from David to Saul when we get to verse three. So look at verse three and I want to read through verse six. Now Samuel had died. And all Israel had lamented for him and buried him in Ramah in his own city. And Saul had put, put the mediums and the spiritists out of the land. Then the Philistines gathered together and came and encamped at Shunem. So Saul gathered all Israel together and they encamped at Gilboa. When Saul saw the army of the Philistines, he was afraid and his heart trembled greatly. And when Saul inquired of the Lord, the Lord did not answer him, either by dreams or by Urim or by the prophets. So we go back to Saul and we see really the sad situation that Saul finds himself in. And it's really been building up to this and we've been talking about this. But the Philistines encamp around Israel. Israel goes to encamp and Saul does what we would hope the king of Israel would do. They, he wants to go to the Lord. He wants to say, what should I do? And he hears nothing. There is no response from God. Why? Because the spirit of the Lord had left Saul right? That wasn't happening anymore. He goes to look for the prophets to tell him something. And there's a problem. What's the problem? You remember? Saul killed them all. He had all the prophets killed. Uh, just last week, I believe, is when we talked about that or the week before. And so the only prophet that escaped from that is with David. And so he has nowhere to go. He has, he has no one to ask. The Lord is completely quiet when the king of Israel is asking, what should we do? And so the heart within Saul sinks. And it's really a sad situation because if you read verses 7 through 25, Saul starts to ask the people around him, hey, do you know of any mediums or any spiritists who we could speak to to help us out? See, because it's kind of interesting how it said, you know, Samuel died, and by the way, Saul had kicked all the medium and the spiritists out of the land. So he had he kicked all these people out of the land, and now he's asking for them to help. And it's kind of interesting because when Saul asks his uh, leaders, hey, do you know of anyone? They do, <laughs> which is against the law. They, they shouldn't even know of anyone, and if they did, they should have driven that person out even farther. But it seems as if it wasn't too odd for them to maybe go to this medium or to talk to somebody and so they said, yeah, we actually do. We know this, this lady. And so you have this really sad picture of Saul asking for a medium. Some, some versions, asking for a witch. That's what asking for here. And so what Saul does is you have the king of Israel then disguises himself, 
covers himself so nobody knows it is his. One, maybe out of embarrassment of what he's doing. But two, where the medium is, is on the outskirts of the Philistine camp. And so he's scared. He doesn't want the Philistines to see him because he knows that they'll kill him. And so he hides on his way to the medium to go seek advice. And when he gets there, the medium doesn't recognize him at first, but the medium says, listen, King Saul has banned us. How do I know that you're not going to turn me in? How do I know that you're not going to get me in trouble? And Saul at this point has the audacity to say this, by the Lord, I swear nothing will happen to you. So so he's going to the, the side of the demons to get advice. He's going to the mediums to seek advice and counsel. And what does he swear by of protection? The Lord. Again, we see what sad state he's in. In verses 11 through 4, you'll see that Saul asks, the medium says, well, who do you want to talk to? And Saul says, I want to talk to Samuel. Can you raise Samuel from the dead? Can you raise his spirit from the dead so that I can talk with him? And it's kind of an interesting thing as you read it. Because when the medium seeks Samuel, she sees Samuel, and her response doesn't seem to be one as if this has happened before. It seems as if this is the first time it's ever happened because she freaks out. She doesn't know what to do. She's scared to death, and and Scripture even tells us at this moment, she realizes that she is dealing with Saul. At this moment, her eyes are open to the fact this is King Saul, and she is scared for her life. She is scared to death of what might happen to her. And I want us to pick up in verse 15 of chapter 28, and we'll read to verse 19. This is the discussion then that Samuel and Saul have with each other. Now Samuel said to Saul, why have you disturbed me by bringing me up? And Saul answered, I am deeply distressed for the Philistines make war against me and God has departed from me and does not answer me anymore, neither by prophets nor by dreams. Therefore, I have called you that you may reveal to me what I should do. Verse 16. Then Samuel said, so why do you ask me seeing the Lord has departed from you and has become your enemy? And the Lord has done for himself as he spoke by me. For the Lord has torn the kingdom out of your hand and given it to your neighbor, David. Because you did not obey the voice of the Lord nor execute his fierce wrath upon Amalek. Therefore, the Lord has done this thing to you this day. Moreover, the Lord will also deliver Israel with you into the hand of the Philistines. And tomorrow, you and your sons will be with me. The Lord will also deliver the army of Israel into the hand of the Philistines. Well, Saul gets a little more than he bargained for here. I don't know what he thought. I don't really know what he expected to happen in this situation by going to this medium and asking to speak to Samuel. And if by some miracle he gets to actually speak to Samuel, which it seems he does here, and we can debate how this happened all along. I'll let you study that on your own. I just think this was a miracle from God of allowing him to speak to Samuel in this moment. And Samuel tells him what he told him before. Samuel tells King Saul what he had already told him before they had departed. Listen, the kingdom is torn from you, just like you torn my robe, King Saul, and God has given it to your neighbor. Now, I I think I'm right on this. I, I tried to look just to make sure. And for the very first time, what Saul hears from the prophet of God is this, your neighbor, David. Now, Saul was already confident that David was going to be king. But it seems for the very first time, the Lord told him through Samuel, yep, it's David and the kingdom is his. And if that wasn't enough, Samuel goes on to tell Saul, and by the way, I'll see you tomorrow because you're going to be with me, dead, you and your sons, your whole family. And Israel is going to go into the hands of the Philistines. Well, Saul is distraught when he ends up hearing this. The medium tries to comfort him, asks him to eat. He says he won't. But then finally, the people that are with him encourages him to take some food and eat. And it's interesting because the medium takes the fatted calf that she has in her home, kills it for the king, prepares a dinner for the king. He eats. And then the Bible tells us Saul leaves into the darkness. Disguising himself again, he leaves to go into the darkness. And that is how chapter 28 ends. As we get to chapter 29, 
it picks back up with David. In verses one through five, David is with Achish, the king of Gath, ready to go to war, but there's a problem. The other Philistines recognize David at this moment. And they say, well, wait, we don't really want him to be fighting with us. Isn't that the guy that Israel sings about? Saul has killed his thousands, David his ten thousands. And when they mean that, they mean Philistines. I don't want this guy fighting with me because what happens if we're fighting against Israel and all of a sudden David decides, hey, I'm an Israelite. I'm going to start fighting for them now. And so the princes of the Philistines have an issue and they tell Achish, we don't want David here. And so we'll pick up in verse six of chapter 29 and read through verse 11 to the end of the chapter. It says, then Achish called David and said to him, surely as the Lord lives, you have been upright and you're going out and you're coming in with me and the army is good in my sight. For to this day, I have, found, I have not found evil in you since the day of your coming to me. Nevertheless, the Lord's do not favor you. Therefore, return now and go in peace that you may not displease the Lord's of the Philistines. <clears throat> it's kind of interesting that it's the Lord's of the Philistines that speak up. There's no doubt that the gods of the Philistines dislike David because he serves the living God who would destroy them. You remember their, their, their God is Dagon who'd already had some problems with the Lord of Israel. It says, so David said to Achish. Now, again, this is, this is very interesting because you would think David would be like, got out of that one, right? Man, great. That got me out of a conundrum. But no, look what David does. But what have I done? And to this day, what have you found in your servant as long as I have been with you that I may not go and fight against the enemies of my Lord, the king? Then Achis answered and said to David, I know that you are as good in my sight as an angel of God. And when he says that, he's referencing the Hebrew God. Nevertheless, the princes of the Philistines have said, he shall not go up with us to the battle. Now, therefore, rise early in the morning with your master's servants who have come with you. And as soon as you are up in the morning and have light, depart. So David and his men rose early to depart in the morning to return to the land of the Philistines. And the Philistines went up to Jezreel. So what do we have? We have happening here, again, God protecting his anointed from himself. It's kind of interesting of the, of the chapters that we've read so far this morning, the first time that God really gets brought up is by Achis, the Philistine king, to say to David, he seems as if he's an angel from God. We never saw David consulting God to go to the Philistines. We haven't seen David consulting God to be a mercenary. We haven't seen David doing these things. We see Saul trying to consult God and we see the sad picture. God doesn't speak to him because he's been rejected. And now you have this foreign king referencing the name of God. But we see God protecting David. Even when David doesn't seem to be searching for him, God is protecting his chosen king. And there's quite a comparison to the end of this chapter with the end of the last chapter. Because at the end of the last chapter, you have Saul doing what? Going off into the darkness. And in this chapter, you have David waiting for the morning and David going off in the light of the morning. I don't think that's by accident of why the author did that. As you get to chapter 30, you expect maybe some good news. You expect maybe something could happen. Again, I want to get us into the shoes of David the best that we can. And I know that that's hard to do. But one of the commentators that I, <clears throat> that I read had mentioned, and I thought this was kind of fitting, he said maybe for the first time in a long time, David had an actual real night's sleep when he was in Ziklag in the city that the Philistines had gave him. Finally, some peace. Finally, some comfort. No more worrying about Saul coming after him. He had the favor of this king. And so finally, there is peace with David. But then he's called up to fight against Israel. And we can't really add to what scripture says. We, we don't know. We see that David seemed to be willing to go and fight. I don't know if he was confident God would get him out of it. I, I don't know. But I would have to think there was some turmoil within him entering into that decision. Well, then he's sent home. 
And maybe David thinks, finally, it's over. Finally, the last straw. I get to go home and relax. But when you read chapter 30, as David approaches his city, off in the horizon, he starts to see smoke. And as he gets closer and closer to Ziklag, he realizes it's his city. The whole town of Ziklag is burned. And in fact, everything that was there is now gone. And so David maybe thought finally some rest was going to come to him. But no, he goes home and he sees his wives have been captured. All of his stuff is gone. And the, the place is a barren wasteland because it has been burned to the ground. And if that's not enough, you know what happens to him? The people around him who've been with him, who he's took care of, who he's loved, they try to stone him. That's what they want to do. They want to stone their leader. They want to, they want to kill him. And so finally, we see in verse 6 that David references the Lord again. It says, David finds strength in the Lord. And he seeks the Lord's face. He calls for the priest and he calls for the ephod. And he says, he goes to the Lord and he says, what should I do? Should I go after these people or not? And the Lord tells him, yes, go after them. And so in verses 9 through 10, you will see that of the 600 men, 400 go with David. The other 200 are left at a brook because they're just too tired to go on. <clears throat> and so these 400 go off with David. As they are going after the people who uh, destroyed their city, they find a man. And this man is almost dead, and it's an Egyptian man. And so the Bible tells us that David takes this man, he feeds him, he does all this stuff, takes care of him. And when this man finally gets back to health, they talk to him and say, who are you? Where are you from? And he tells them, I'm an Egyptian, but I've been with the Amalekites. We just came back from destroying the town of Ziklag. And David says, well, can you take me to, these, to their camp? Can you take me to where they are? And the guy says, if you promise to take care of me, I'll take you there. And so David agrees. And so this is what the Egyptian does. He takes David to the people who destroyed his city. And so we see in verses 16 through 20 that David gets back everything, plus some. He destroys the Amalekites. Some of them still escape, but he destroys the Amalekites, gets everything back, and they head back to Ziklag to, to share the spoils with everybody. But there's a problem. Of the 400 men who went, they don't want to share with the 200 men who stayed behind. And the Bible actually calls them like scoundrels, worthless men who are with David. And they say, these guys didn't do anything. We were tired too, but we didn't stay behind. And David actually then sets up a statute within all of Israel at this point and says, no, we'll give the spoils to them as well. They deserve it also, not just us who went out and fought. And he makes this a law. And then in verses 26 through 31, David sends some of the spoils all throughout Judah to all the elders of Judah and gives them to them. And it's interesting because this is a wise move on David's part, not just to get the people of Judah together, but maybe this was just his kindness. You see it coming out of him. But he also seems to be a very wise leader within this moment. Well, that gets us to chapter 31, where we now again remove our attention from David and we get our attention back to Saul. And it's very quickly in chapter 31, verses 1 through 6, we see what happens. It says, now the Philistines fought against Israel and the men of Israel fled from before the Philistines and fell slain on Mount Gilboa. Then the Philistines followed hard after Saul and his sons and the Philistines killed Jonathan, Abinadab and Melchishua, Saul's sons. The battle became fierce against Saul. The archers hit him and he was severely wounded by the archers. Then Saul said to his armor bearer, draw your sword and thrust me through with it lest these uncircumcised men come and thrust me through and abuse me. But his armor bearer would not, for he was greatly afraid. Therefore Saul took a sword and fell on it. And when his armor bearer saw that Saul was dead, he also fell on his sword and died with him. So Saul, his three sons, his armor bearer, and all his men died together that same day. So the end of a pitiful life ends in a pitiful way. Saul kills himself by falling on his sword after his armor bearer wouldn't do it for him. He's wounded. He's wounded so bad. He, he knows he's not going to live, but he doesn't want the Philistines to get him. And so he takes his own life. 
In verses 7 through 10, we see Israel tries to flee. And we see that the Philistines actually come and they find King Saul. They take King Saul's armor off of him. They cut off his head. And they take his body and his son's bodies. And they mutilate them. And they end up posting it on a wall in town for everybody to see. This is the king of Israel that we have defeated. In verses 11 through 13, there's a group of men from Jabesh Gilead, which maybe you remember this or maybe you don't, but this was the town that King Saul had saved when he first became king. When he would cut up all the oxen and send it out, they would save this town. And maybe in respect to King Saul, it says the men of this town didn't like what was happening to his body. And so they went in secret and stole his body. They end up burning his body and burying his bones and fasting for him. And so we see the very sad end for the very first king of Israel. The downward spiral of his life has led to this point of destruction, not just for him, but of his whole family as well. We don't have time to talk about it today, but it's really a sad ending for Jonathan. Jonathan has been an upright, maybe we could call him Christian, his whole life. He honored his dad, who was a scoundrel, but he still honored him and stayed by his side. He honored the anointed king who was to come in David and giving him his armor and giving him everything, just saying, in all humility, you are the next king. Not me, you are the next king. We really see Jonathan do everything with perfection all throughout scripture. And even in the midst of that, his life ends. Probably around the age of 30-some, maybe 40-some, in a battle against the uncircumcised Philistines. We really could sit there and talk about how unfair that looks. Sometimes as Christians, it's not about the fairness of this world, is it? We've all experienced that. Well, in 2 Samuel chapter 1, and you might say, why are you going to 2 Samuel chapter 1? That's a different book. It's, ac- it's actually not. It's all one book in the original text. We've broke it up over years, and that's why we have it in two. But the story continues in chapter 1 of 2 Samuel. In verses 1 through 16 of the first book of 2 Samuel, David hears of Saul and Jonathan's death. A man comes to David's city with words of the battle, and David wants to know what happened. And so David asks him, what happened? And the man responds by telling him how Israel was overtook and how King Saul and his kids are dead. And he gives to David, he says, look, here is the crown and here is the bracelet of King Saul. And so we see a time of mourning where David mourns for the king he weeps for Saul. He weeps for Jonathan. And he asks this, this guy at one point, he says, how do you know this? How do you know, how do you know that the king is dead? And this guy actually comes up with a little tale. It's a lie is what he does. And he says, well, I, I ran into King Saul. He was hurt. He was wounded. And he asked me who I was. I told him who I was. And he asked if I would kill him. And so I did. We know that's not true because we read how he died. Saul, Saul killed himself. He would never let an uncircumcised person kill him. That was his issue. So he wouldn't let this Amalekite kill him. But what would happen a lot of times during war is you would have these people who would uh, go into the war battles and if a soldier had some money on their pocket and laying dead, they were getting the money. They were getting the bracelets. They were doing these things. And it seems as if this is who this guy was. And it seems as if this guy thought, I could do something good for the next king of Israel. Maybe he will honor me. I'm going to take him the crown and the bracelet of the old king because he's about to be the new king. And he'll be happy to see me. He'll be happy that his kingdom now can happen and reign. But really the opposite happened. David mourns, David weeps. Then David has the Amalekite executed and he tells him, who do you think you are killing the Lord's anointed? The Lord anointed him to be king. You can't take his life. And so we'd see David has the Amalekite executed. And then I want to read verses 17 to the end of the chapter because David then laments for the king and for his family and for Israel. And let's read David's lament. It says, Then David lamented with his lamentation over Saul and over Jonathan, his son. And he told them to teach the children of Judah the song of the bow. Indeed, it is written in the book of Jasher. 
The beauty of Israel is slain on your high places. How the mighty have fallen. Tell it not in Gath. Proclaim it not in the streets of Ashkelon. Lest the daughters of the Philistines rejoice. Lest the daughters of the uncircumcised triumph. O mountains of Gilboa, let there be no dew nor rain upon you, nor fields of offerings. For the shield of the mighty is cast away there. The shield of Saul not anointed with oil. From the blood of the slain, from the fat of the mighty, the bow of Jonathan did not turn back, and the sword of Saul did not return empty. Saul and Jonathan were beloved and pleasant in their lives, and in their death they were not divided. They were swifter than eagles. They were stronger than lions. O daughters of Israel, weep over Saul, who clothed you in scarlet with luxury, who put ornaments of gold on your apparel, How the mighty have fallen in the midst of the battle. Jonathan was slain in your high places. I am distressed for you, my brother, Jonathan. You have been very pleasant to me. Your love to me is wonderful, surpassing the love of women. How the mighty have fallen and the weapons of war perished. It's an interesting response, is it not, from David? He says all these nice things about King Saul who's tried to kill him over and over and over again. But yet he recognizes him as the king of Israel. He recognizes the good things that Saul did. How he would say, you clothe, he clothed you in scarlet and luxury. So the good things that Saul had done for Israel. When you look at all these chapters that we've looked at, we must compare Saul and David again. And the way that the author writes this shows us that he wants us to compare Saul and David because he keeps bouncing back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. And so the writer wants us to see this. And no doubt in our chapters that we read today, both men make mistakes. Both men make some really bad decisions in the midst of their problems and in the midst of their struggles. David going off to the Philistines, sinning against the Lord by leaving Judah, But then it seems also being willing to fight against Israel with the king of Gath, Saul, going to a medium, going to the occult to get answers from the Lord of what he should do in such a sad state. He feels he has nowhere else to go because the Lord has shut himself up from Saul. So he says, well, then I'll go to the enemy of the Lord. Maybe he can tell me what to do. It really is a sad state for both of them at this moment. But there is an important difference between the two. And I want us to think about this in terms of our life as well, because it seems as if the difference is this. Wanting the Lord for who he is versus wanting the Lord for the blessings that he provides. There's a big difference between the two of those things. Because whenever David would get in trouble, we find him, what does he do? He finds strength in the Lord. We see this over and over again. David would find strength in himself through the Lord and he would seek the face of the Lord. But Saul, not so much. Because when Saul would have problems, when Saul would have issues, he wanted God's guidance. He wanted God's blessings. But it doesn't seem he actually wanted the Lord. The way Dale Ralph Davis put it is that Saul would want God's guidance just simply so that he wouldn't make the wrong decision. Saul just seems like he didn't want to look bad before the people or Saul just didn't want to get hurt. See, he wanted the results of God. He wanted the blessings of God, but he didn't really want God. David wanted God. We see this in the Psalms that he would write, how he would seek after the Lord's face, how he would, how he, when he would sin, he would say to God, against you only have I sinned. I need to seek forgiveness from you in these things. It's very common for us still today to be this same way here. Do we really want the Lord or do we want the benefits of the Lord? There's a lot of people who go to church and they say churchy things, but I really don't know if that's what we want or I think there's a confusion of of who the Lord is It's hard for us to separate the blessings of the Lord just from the being of the Lord. And we want his blessings, but do we really want him for who he is? I've heard it stated a lot around this time with the election. 
quoting verses about returning to God so that he will bless our nation. And I got to be honest, the people who even say that, I don't know if they know what they're saying. I think what they're saying is this. We want God's blessings. I don't think they're really willing to seek God's face. And there's a big difference. In America, we would love to have the blessings of God on us. And we say that we've had the blessings of God on us. But it doesn't seem to me as if we really want to go to the Lord for who he is. Jonathan, I gave him as an example earlier. He seems as if he sought the Lord's face. It seems as if he did everything right, but yet in the end, no blessing. In the end, no reward, right? No, nothing, nothing good that we can see. He was supposed to be the next king, right? Because he's the son of Saul. No, that's taken from you. David's going to be. When he gives himself to David and says, fine, I am perfectly fine with that. Just let me serve in your court. What does he get after that? Death on a hill from the Philistines. But you see, that wasn't the thing for Jonathan. Doesn't seem to be. It was blessings. He wanted the face of the Lord. Sadly, within the church, all around the world, there's people who want eternal life. They want satisfaction. They want joy. They want hope. They want victory. But what they don't want to do, they don't want to humble themselves before the throne of God. They're not willing to obey him. They're not actually willing to surrender themselves to him fully and accept the fact that they are sinners wrong and have no way to satisfy that in themselves. They're not willing to do that. They just want the blessings. Just give me the goods. I don't want the bads. I don't want the struggles. I don't want the heartaches. I don't want to lower myself before anybody, even you, God. They want to be the leader of their story. They don't want him to be the leader of their story. I really think this is the difference that we see in David and Saul of David being a king after God's heart and Saul being a king after man's heart. Saul was always concerned about how he would look before his people. How dare they say David do 10,000, me only 1,000. That hurt him. Saul just wanted the blessings of God. He didn't want God. And David is the exact opposite. David isn't perfect. We see that over and over again. But he is God's chosen king. And we see this play out in his life and in his character. God chose him to be the king. And then it just exuded from him that that was true. Again, not perfection, but we see it to be true in his life as he would return to God and want fellowship with God. And he would write things like, oh, it's so good just to be in your courts than anywhere else. He wanted God so desperately and he had him because God had, had chosen him. Again, David, David holds a very special position that we don't hold. I've said that over and over again. But you can see some similarities to him and to us. And I think a question that we really have to ask ourselves as individuals is are you interested in God for who God is? Are you, or are you interested in God for what God has. I'm embarrassed to say it, but I had a friend when I lived in Monroe here. He was my friend because he had a pool. He was my friend because his parents bought him all the Nintendo games. I didn't really care much for him. I didn't appreciate him. I didn't really necessarily wanted to be his friend. I wanted to be friends with his things. And you say, well, yeah, you were a kid and that was dumb. I think that's how a lot of us treat our Lord. Jesus, I love you because you give me eternal life. Thanks. Now butt off. I know I'm supposed to confess to you daily. I know I'm supposed to be in church faithfully. I know I'm supposed to be faithful to my wife and to my kids. I, I know I, I'm supposed to be reading your word. I know all these things that 
you would have for me to do. And I know it tells me that you will draw me to yourself more and more. But to be honest, I don't really need to be drawn anymore if you've given me the pass to heaven. What more do I need? I think too often that's what we say with our actions. And I think that was the great sin of Saul. Well, the last thing I want us to notice, we notice there at the end of chapter 1 of of, uh, 2 Samuel, we notice David's pain in seeing the rejected king slain. And I don't want to wipe over this because it was not a joyful thing for David to know that the king was dead and that now may be his time to be ushered in. Because you remember, in the chapters before that we talked about, David kept saying, let the Lord kill him, not me. I'm not going to usher in my kingdom. We're going to let the Lord do that. So there has to be some inkling in David's mind that now might be the time. But we don't see a parade. Instead, we see fasting. The Amalekite, who thought David would just be happy that his enemy is dead, no, he faced death. David mourns, he laments this death. Why? Because I believe Scripture's showing us here, David did not want to see Saul separated from God. I think it hurt, I think it hurt David to see the king of Israel, who the Lord had chosen as the king of Israel, to be so separated from God. I think that was difficult for David to see. And you might say, well, how, how do you get that? Where do you, where do you see that from? Well, I keep telling you that David is a type of Christ here, and we keep seeing this. And I believe it's the same in the heart of our Lord. It's, I believe it's the same heart that, that God has. And we, we see this in the New Testament. God, I don't believe, finds great pleasure in seeing anybody go to hell. Now, that doesn't mean nobody goes to hell. It doesn't mean that God's unloving because people go to hell. I'm not saying that because to the verses that I'm going to read to you in a moment, there's, there's counter verses that, that do say God takes pleasure in the death of his enemies. So, so we got to balance that. But I, I want you to hear these verses that show us a part of God's character. Because in 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 3 and 4, the Bible tells us, this is good and it is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. In the Old Testament, in Ezekiel 33, and again, God is, God is speaking here with Israel, but he says this, And you, son of man, say to the house of Israel, Thus have you said, Surely our transgressions and our sins are upon us, and we rot away because of them. How then can we live? Say to them, As I live, declares the Lord, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked turn from his way and live. Turn back, turn back from your evil ways. For why will you die, O house of Israel? We see this characteristic within God who doesn't enjoy seeing the wicked perish. But instead we see a God who has a desire for all to come and to know him. I often wonder if I have that same desire in my heart. I struggle with that. I like to see my enemies lose. I hate to see my enemies win. Maybe some of you are going through that right now. That's hit you right in the face pretty bluntly. It's hard for us to see those things. But I think as people who want to have the same characteristics of God, I want to love how God loves. And so I, I need to have within me this desire to pray that God would save the souls of the wicked. Now, if that doesn't happen and they die, and by all accounts, it looks as if we know that they are separated from God, I still have to call that just and good because God would do the same thing. But in the meantime, I need to have a heart for the lost, a caring for them, because I believe God does as well. We sang a hymn this morning. It was wrote in 1759. I think Matt stole this from my notes, if I'm being honest with you. Okay? He saw my notes. But we sang the song, Come Ye Sinners, Poor and Needy. 
And I don't know if you listened to the words as you sang them or as you talked to them, but this is truly the heart of God. And if you're here this morning and you are a sinner separated from God, you've never been saved by the grace of God. You've never fallen on your face before God in a way that says, you are God and I am not. You've never surrendered yourself saying, I'm a sinner separated from you and the only thing that can help me is Jesus and what he did on the cross. If you've never done that before, you, maybe, maybe you've just been here all along for the benefits. You haven't really looked to the face of God and said, that is what I want. I want God in my life. I don't care about the benefits. I don't care about the blessings. I just, I want him. Then I think this song is true for you and you need to hear it because I think this is the heart of God. When we sing, come ye sinners, poor and needy, weak and wounded, sick and sore, Jesus ready stands to save you, full of pity, love, and power. Come ye thirsty, come and welcome, God's free bounty glorify. True belief and true repentance, every grace that brings you nigh. Let not conscience make you linger, nor of fitness fondly dream. All the fitness he requireth is to feel your need of him. How often maybe you've been saying that. Once I get a little better, I'll go to God. Once I figure this out, then I'll seek after him. What we're singing there is you don't do that. The fitness he requires of you is for you to feel your need for him. That's it, simply. Verse four, come ye weary, heavy laden, lost and ruined by the fall. If you tarry till you're better, you will never come at all. Verse five, and I hope this would be you, or I hope it has been. I will rise and go to Jesus. He will save me from my sin. By the riches of his merit, there is joy and life in him. This is the heart of our God. This is the heart that he gives us when he saves us by his grace. To look upon sinners who are broken and weary, and they might not even understand that, but to share with them the good news of this. You can come to him and he will accept you. Though sadly, our church might not accept you. Though sadly, other churches may not accept you. Jesus will accept you because he came for the broken, he came for the downtrodden, he came for the poor and for the hurting. And the question remains then today, is that you? Are you poor? Are you hurting? Are you sore? Then come ye to Jesus the one who will never push you away. He will save you. He will love you all the way to your dying day. That's good news for us. We need that rest. Our land needs that rest. Your neighbors, your family members, they need that rest that can only be found in Christ. It can't be found in anything else only in him. I hope you trust in that and I hope it's true in your life. Let's bow together. Let's pray. God, I'm thankful that you've given us music. You've given us people who've wrote songs that are more poetic than I could ever be. Songs that speak to the truth of your word. And that's really the what determines a good song. God, although we might not like the melody or whatever, God, I'm thankful that these words were written. I'm thankful that it's true. God, I'm thankful that we see in the king that you had chosen in David, the heart that this song even represents there. David wouldn't stand over Saul and be proud that his death had happened and now his time in the kingdom had come but he would mourn for the separation 
of Saul and, and the Lord. God, I know we're not perfect to God as Christians. Your word tells us that you're molding us and making us into the image of your son more and more each day. And I know for me personally, this is an area that needs to be molded more and more. A heart of compassion for the lost. For those people in our world who are wandering around completely lost. They, they think they have the answers. They think they know what's best. They think a lot of these things. Many of them think you are their enemy. But God, we know better than that. You are their only hope. And so God, I pray that you would help us to pray diligently for those who are lost. God, we, I pray that you would shed your grace on them, that you would open their eyes up to the truth, that you would use your church, that you would use your word to do those things. God, in our hearts, remove bitterness, remove malice, remove hatred so that we can be compassionate. And God, forgive us of our sins of that. We struggle even within the church to love each other. Other Christians who've been saved by grace, who've been accepted by you, we struggle and fight amongst ourselves. God, forgive us of that. How can we even start to engage a lost world when we struggle within these walls? God, put within our hearts this morning a yearning for you, a love for you and for the things that you have set up for us. Give us a passion for that that it seems David has to find our strength in you and you alone. Not, not the benefits, not the blessings, but in you. God, we want to serve you. We want to honor you. So help us now even as we sing this last song of praise to you. I pray that we would praise your name, that we would honor you above all things. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. You have been listening to a message by Pastor Tim from Together in Christ. This content has been provided to you by Monroe Missionary Baptist Church. For more information, visit us online at mmbconline.org.